Hey, and welcome to the podcast. Today we're going to be reading from Nehemiah 2, 11 to 20, and this is the word of the Lord. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one that I was riding on. By night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem which had been broken down and its gates which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet that I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, Let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. And we thank God for his word and how it still speaks to us today. Perspective is a wonderful thing. But sometimes perspective is also a terrible thing, right? I mean, sometimes it's a not paying enough attention thing. Like that quick glance over you give yourself in a rush when you're going out and you think, yeah, not bad for a two-minute turnaround time. Only to glance at yourself properly in the, in the mirror when you arrive at your friend's house or wherever you're going and you see that you still got half your dinner in your teeth. Or maybe it's a distance thing, right? A clarity thing. I'm a little bit embarrassed to admit, but when I was a teenager, we used to play a points-based game of shotgun around two groups of people. One, people with mullets. Two, babes. Well, I mean, we were 14-year-old boys, right? you got to kind of realise that. And so you called shotgun and you got points based on the quality of the mullet or how much of a babe the person was. So one day we're walking on Port Ballantry Beach and my mate Frank calls out, Shotgun! Total babe up there! Like amazing hair and all! 100 pointer! Best ever! And we're like, mate, how on earth can you tell? They're so far away! Like I, I can barely even see them! How do you know? And he's like, mate, trust me. But when we got close enough to see this 100 point babe, it turned out, all joking aside, it was actually a man with a small dog on his shoulder. Minus... One million points. Or maybe sometimes it's a memory thing. Like, things are not quite how we remembered or imagined them. Like that scene in one of the best movies ever, Home Alone 2. While Kevin is busy bombing into a swimming pool and living it up in the incredible suite that he's in at the Plaza Hotel, the rest of the McAllisters are pulling up into the Via de Dolphine Motel in Florida. And the eternal words of Uncle Frank, film's most hated person, It didn't look this bad on our honeymoon. This isn't how I remembered it. It's not how I imagined it. I wonder if you've ever felt this way. 
When we left the story of Nehemiah last week, he just boldly asked the Persian king, Artaxerxes, permission to go to Jerusalem from where he was in Susa to rebuild the ruined walls of Jerusalem. Incredibly, the king had granted him his wish and on top of that had given him letters to the various local dignitaries for supplies that he'd need along the way. And as well, he granted him a military escort to make sure that he got there safe. He had had incredible provision from the Lord. So this week, as we're digging back into Nehemiah, he's just arrived at Jerusalem and it's worse than I'm sure he could ever have imagined. He would have been tired. The journey there is about a thousand miles and it's a hard road. It's likely he would have been traveling for around four months. He would have covered something like nine or ten miles a day, traveling through really difficult terrain, camping at night, moving off at dawn so that they avoided the worst of the midday sun. He would have been exhausted. And we all know how much more difficult things can be to process when you're tired. So he arrives, and it's the first time he's laid eyes on Jerusalem, the holy city. And I'm sure he would have been overcome by what he saw, except not in a good way. This wasn't the way he would have imagined it. It was ruined, destroyed, pathetic, shattered. He was disappointed, and he was exhausted. So the first thing the passage tells us is that he rested for three full days. But next, speaking to the careful planner that we already know Nehemiah is, he needed to see with his own eyes what God has called him to. And this is what it says. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool. But there was not enough room for my mind to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. And finally, I turned back. And re-entered through the valley gate. He took a few trusted people with him. These people were likely local. Most commentators think they wouldn't have been people he brought with him. They would have been local people who were faithful to him and they knew the area well. And so he heads out at night to see for himself. And the reality is that the picture would have shocked him. This is what it says in verse 14. Then I moved through on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool. But there was not enough room for my mind to get through. In other words, read. The walls were so bad, so damaged, so destroyed that I couldn't even get my horse through. You see, for Nehemiah, he was finally, after all the praying, the dreaming, in the process and getting to see the full picture of God's move in his life. And the thing is, when I talk to people about what God wants to do through them in their lifetime, just about all of us long to see more of the picture, don't we? We want to see a year down the line, three years down the line, five years down the line, ten years down the line, where we're going to be. We want to see what it is that's going to be before us, don't we? But what if what we saw was what Nehemiah got to see when he reached Jerusalem? What if we too realize that the things that God is calling us to and capturing our hearts for were this big? You see, for Nehemiah, his eyes were finally seeing the full picture and he found out that he was being called to a project that was demanding, hazardous and that was far bigger than himself. It was demanding because one look around the ruins of the walls and the gates told him that he was going to need skilled people to do the various parts. Nehemiah was a cupbearer. He wasn't a steel worker. He wasn't a bricklayer. It was going to be demanding and it was going to be hazardous because he knew he was going to come up against opposition, powerful, influential, dangerous opposition. And that one walk around would show him that he was never going to be able to do all of this on his own. He was going to need to build a team. He was going to need to set vision. And he was going to need to lead a whole team of people toward the goal. Right there, in these moments, it was pitch black at night. 
He was surrounded by ruins and just a few followers and a thousand miles from where he first felt God move in his heart. He was finally seeing the full vision of what God had him for. You see, he knew he was going to need a plan. And that's the title we went with today, Plan. And his next move, the start of the plan, was going to involve two things. Careful communication and compelling vision. The first thing was this, he was going to need careful communication. You know, I wonder if you've ever been in a situation before where maybe you've given too much away. You've said too much right at the wrong time. Joy and I managed to get away on a retreat on Monday and Tuesday of this week that involved sending our daughter Elle off to spend her first sleepover away from us, not in our home. Yep, that's right. 18 months old and we haven't shipped her out anywhere else. Our lives are that sad. We really do need to change. Anyway, so we've been planning it for weeks and we're still pretty nervous about her staying with other people in another house, right? I mean, it's with my mum and dad and they've seen her lots and they look after her really often, but they were going to take her, but they themselves were pretty nervous about her staying with them. And Elle's never been the best sleeper, right? I mean, but by and large, uh, we've been in a good little rhythm in the weeks up until now. And then, just a few days before she's got to go, she starts getting a little bit strange when particularly Joy goes out of the room, right? So, like, you know, she goes off to work in the morning and Elle just starts, like, classic baby, big, sad face and tears, right? Like, uh, crying, like, proper sad crying every time Joy leaves the room. So then, and then, even worse was the night before she was due to stay with mum and dad, she had a total shocker of a night. Like, I mean, she was up about five times, cry fest, 5,000, nobody gets any sleep. And Joy and I are like, what the heck, what are we going to do? Like, what are we going to do? What if she's like that while we're away? It'll be a disaster. We'll be driving back from a, from a retreat because we got a call at 3 a.m. in the morning to, to say that there's nothing that mum and dad can do and they can't manage to calm an inconsolable baby. And we're freaking out about it. So then the morning comes and we go round to my mum and dad's to drop Elle off. And we talk them through our routine and all of that sort of stuff for the day ahead. And we're kind of like trying to get out of the house as quickly as we can. And right as we're down in the hallway about to go out of the house, my dad asks, So how has she been? Nothing to worry about, son? Yeah? What do you think we said to that question? Well, I can reveal that the answer was, oh no, 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 nothing at all. No, she's been great. Elle's a brilliant sleeper. You, you'll have no trouble whatsoever. Bye. And just ran out the door, right? Because we all know that if we say no, she's actually been really strange every time we leave. And last night she really didn't sleep at all. It torpedoes the whole getaway. We never actually managed to go because there's no way that my parents take that child for that night, right? And the reality was that Nehemiah knows what he's been called to do. He knows exactly why he's in Jerusalem, what he's traveled all that distance for. And yet, what does it say in verse 12? I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. And then again in verse 16, the officials did not know what I had, what I, where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. He doesn't tell a soul, not even the ones he was with. And they were the ones who he trusted. He tells no one what God had placed in his heart. And further than that, right, he does his recon mission at nighttime. And he didn't tell anyone where he was going on that mission, what route he'd take, when he was going to see the city walls. Why? Because the reality is that there's a right time and there's a wrong time to share the plans that God has placed in your heart. And this wasn't the right time. 
He knew that to broadcast loud and clear to everyone around that the cupbearer to the Persian king was here in Jerusalem and sent by the God of heaven and earth to rebuild the ruined gates and walls and restore the people of God to the holy city. To pronounce that would be a train wreck, right? There's no way that this ever gets off the ground because he knew that opposition was near. This is what it says in verse 19. But when Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and they ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? And straight away, right, there's a couple of things we can recognize that are pretty clear even from this short interaction. The first is this. Now there was more opposition. In verse 10 of chapter 2, where we finished last week, it was only Sanballat and Tobiah. But now there's also Geshem. There were two and now there are three. Opposition was growing, but also the opposition is vocal. In that same verse, verse 10, Sanballat and Tobiah were greatly disturbed about the rebuilding project, is what the Bible says. But now they're outspoken. They mock and they ridicule them by even whispering rebellion, let alone asking the question outright. They were questioning Nehemiah's very motives. Opposition was probing. So strong opposition is forming against them. And maybe you're sat there today and you're thinking, okay, great, cool history lesson, Dave. But what does this building project of the man of a man in the Middle East thousands of years ago have to do with me right now? Well, the thing is, the opposition Nehemiah was facing then was in so many ways just like that which we face now. The first person was Sanballat. And that was a Babylonian name. In other words, his ancestors were very likely among those who rushed in to live in the land of Samaria to replace the Israelites who had been taken off to Assyria in the 8th century. They would have intermarried not just physically, but spiritually with the people of the land all around them. And what's more, he had administrative responsibilities over Samaria, which included Jerusalem. And he would have been threatened by the arrival of a Persian king's cupbearer. In other words... The opposition was speaking out of a political concern. And Tobiah, right? His name meant Yahweh is good, right? Not great, not amazing, not incredible, not all-powerful, not the God of heaven and earth. Yahweh is good. And that kind of tells you all you need to know about what he thought about our God. He was objecting because he had on paper Israelite roots, even though they were pretty shady. And we would have essentially been saying, hey, I'm from here. I'm the Israelite around here. Why wasn't I consulted on this project? In other words, opposition was speaking out of a religious concern. But now there's this third person as well, Geshem the Arab. Geshem the Arab sounds like something out of an Only Fools and Horses character, right? But he, he wasn't. He was an Arabic man. He was really wealthy and powerful. He dealt in things like frankincense and myrrh and expensive spices. And he got wealthy doing so by what most wealthy people and organizations have done through the years, which is they have exploited others who were less well off. And he would have been looking at Nehemiah's presence there and his desire to rebuild a broken people and would have thought, this is going to be bad for business. In other words, opposition was speaking out of a material concern too. Politics, power, control, religion, practice, traditions, material stuff, greed, more. And this affects me. And this affects you. Because I can't think of a single time in my life when I've heard God speak and I felt him moving me to follow him into things that he has for me and not felt the opposition of one of these things. 
felt God capture my heart for something or someone, felt a sense of his presence or power propelling me forwards into fresh purpose and so often straight away heard the voice come from outside and if I'm honest, even more regularly from inside it says things like, but if you do this, you'll lose control. Or things like, this is crazy. You just don't do things like that or things like, it sounds good but you'd rather just get this shiny new thing or that thing or that thing or that thing or whatever my Instagram feed tells me that I need or I want. You see, for every move of God in your heart and in your life, the opposition that speaks to you or from you will nearly always speak through power and control, practice and comfort, stuff and more. So how does he respond in the face of that opposition? Well, he doesn't fire back. He doesn't even particularly speak to the voices that have so accused him. He lifts God up as he sets his course and he navigates opposition. This is what it says. The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. You see, when the opposition comes, he stands on the one who was above it all. Nehemiah used careful communication, but finally he also had a compelling vision. So Nehemiah has made the journey. He's done the recon. He knows opposition is coming. And it's come to the point of him actually speaking out what he's there to do. And this is what it says in verse 17 and 18. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. And I love this, right? I love this because when it comes to the moment of speaking out what was on his heart, he uses pure Bill Hybels 101 vision casting. So what do I mean when I say that, right? Well, Bill Hybels, who was the senior church leader at Willow Creek and headed up the Global Leadership Summit and uh, would have been a voice that spoke with so much clarity into leadership issues around the world. He used to have this theory that effective vision casting used a we can't stay here narrative because most times, right, when we try to share vision, we just tell people where we're going to go we just tell them that we're going to change this much we just tell them where the destination is and that has a problem right and the problem is that it doesn't really work and the reason that it doesn't work is because lots of people are perfectly comfortable where they are why would they want to change change is costly I don't get it. I don't see the need. And the other thing is that it tends to give all the naysayers and the people who aren't particularly on board with you the perfect opportunity to point out that this is a stupid move and they take the chance to undermine your leadership and so on and so on and so on. But if you approach your vision by first painting the true picture of just how bad things are, then people feel it and it resonates with them. And their automatic reaction is to say things like, like, this is awful. This is terrible. We need to do something about this. What are we going to do? To which you, the leader, reply, thank goodness, I'm so glad you responded this way. Well, we're going to, and then you deliver your vision. And that's exactly what Nehemiah does, doesn't he? You see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. The people would have been thinking, it's true. It's awful. We're disgraced. We're unsafe. So then, come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. We'll no longer be in disgrace. The walls are ruined. We can't stay here. So let's rebuild. It's so simple, right? But also in these moments, it had nuances. Verse 17, you see the trouble we are in. We, not you. 
He's just arrived. Just a few days before, it was their trouble. But now it's his too. Nehemiah was once again putting himself in the picture. But even more than that, by mentioning disgrace, he was alluding to the disgrace that God's people were living in as they worshipped the God of a ruined city. Like we mentioned in week one, in that age, a ruined city, in a time where where you had these kind of localized gods that, that every kind of area, geographical area or city had their own gods. If your city was thriving and doing well, you must have had a powerful god. But the inverse was true. If your city was crushed and ruined and defeated and desolate, well, obviously you worshipped a weak god. Jerusalem was a ruin. So the world around would have thought, well, what a pathetic god. He sent to them, not only is our safety at stake here, but so is our god's name. His name is on the line. The thing is, people often ask about leadership. They'll often ask what it is and how do you know you're a leader and all sorts of questions like that. And right now we're seeing that the full picture of what Nehemiah's leadership journey will be. And it will be the distance between the ruins that he's standing in and the restoration project that God has placed in his heart. And in this moment, Nehemiah's leadership looked like giving the sort of vision that would galvanize a people around the project of God for Jerusalem. And I love this. I love this. Because it's so easy to forget that so often in the Bible, and in the history of the church, spiritual renewal and real transformation begins with a vision and a purpose that God gives to one person. Or maybe even very small numbers of people. You know, we so frequently underestimate what God can do through even one person. And if we're not underestimating what he can do, other times we just find it hard to even let the words out because we can feel like people won't listen anyway. And yet, right here, one person speaks out words that a whole city were longing to hear. Dejected, disappointed, poor, living in ruins, worshipping a God who was a made mockery in the rest of the world. But Nehemiah spoke the sort of vision that a whole city would turn into reality. And they joined in. Right away, verse 18, they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. I mean, that is absolutely incredible. You know, like, I don't know if you've ever shared a vision with people before, whether in a workplace or maybe you're in a leadership position or maybe even just over your family and you shared it. I mean, most people do nothing. You know, they process, they take their sweet time. But right here, these people reply like, instantaneously let us start rebuilding and they get on with it and on the face of it it sounds like the heart responders have won doesn't it i mean the head responders are still in their head somewhere processing all of the stuff they've just heard but the heart responders have like boom they're in but actually that's not what's going on here because the reality for these people is that it would have been hard They were living in Jerusalem in a time of ruin and a time of little. And enlisting to start work on the walls would have been hugely costly because on a purely practical level, they were choosing to work on this project. And if they were choosing to work on this project, they couldn't possibly have been working and earning otherwise. This was sacrificial work. It cost a lot. But then the call is still the same now in all our lives, isn't it? Books like 1 Peter and Romans speak time and time again about how costly, committed and sacrificial it is to walk in the way of Jesus for the transformation of the world. The Israelites then, like us now, would have understood how hard it was going to be. And they would have wanted to be reassured, right? They would have been looking at Nehemiah and saying, like, Nehemiah, you've got to give us something here. We're stepping out big time. This is going to cost us a lot. 
What can you say? What can you do to reassure us? And this is what it says in verse in verse 20, in reply to the opposition. He answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. But even right before that, he said, I told him about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. What does all this mean? It means that they were looking for assurance. As some of us are looking for assurance where we sit today. And what do we have to offer? All we've got is a God who has been and will always be sufficient. And change is coming not because of me or any other leader that's in your life, but because of the hand of God that has so been on all our lives. You're looking for assurance? Don't take it from me. Don't take it from Nehemiah. Take confidence. Take heart in the God who is always and so present. See, for Nehemiah, it wasn't only about God being present. It was because he was sufficient. And he was sufficient because he was both the God whose hand was upon him and the God who was the God of heaven. He's sufficient because he is transcendent, but he's also sufficient because he's imminent. He's the God of heaven and the God whose hand is upon us. He's the God of way up here stuff and the God of right down here with us stuff. And I think we so easily begin to slip into a culture in our lives that says he's not sufficient when we begin to pull these two qualities apart. The thing is, they must never be apart because he is both. What do I mean? Well, I mean like the times when we're struggling. And we're reeling against a God who appears silent, who appears distant. who appears disinterested, whose presence we can't feel, whose voice we haven't heard in a while. And we're in the middle of stuff and we begin to stop trusting him with our lives and forget that not only is he the God who's right here, but he's also the God of the heavens and the earth, the name above every name, the one he was and is and is to come, the one who set this world into motion and the one he pronounced it's finished and conquered death and sin and he holds our future in the same hands we say we don't see. But what about the other times? That we're so busy proclaiming and remembering and believing in a God who is so far above all our understanding. He's great and ageless, faithful, full of truth and holy. He's above all things. But in above all the lifting up here, we so easily forget that he is also right here. He's also God with us. We forget to access and encounter the power of a God who can not only change the world, but change our world in the here and now. It can change a conversation, can change a heart, can change a situation, can change an environment, can change a workplace, can change a home. He is not either or. Our God is both and. And the people of Israel needed to know that then as we do now because he is sufficient and will only believe so and walk out of a faith that believes so when we put our trust in a God who is transcendent and right here we must never separate those qualities there is an eternal throne and there is a loving hand and he is our assurance as we step into the plan and we walk in the way of Jesus the beginning of the plan is careful communication and compelling vision You know, I realize that these first three weeks of Blueprint have been pretty purpose, vision, and calling heavy, right? I realize that. And we've dug into what's looked like a story of somebody who's a ninja-level leader. And he's taken on a massive building project in the Bible. 
And I realize that for some of you today, you could be sat there thinking, yeah, that's great, but what if I don't feel some great big purpose or call in my life? What if I'm in a season, you know, where I've just had a newborn baby and I'm kind of stuck in the house all the time and I don't feel like I'm even capable of doing big, great, massive things for God right now, or I'm between jobs, or I've just left uni for the summer, or I'm in just a period of stall and quiet, and I just don't feel like I'm in a time with a big purpose or call in my life. I'm just quietly following Jesus. What am I meant to do with all of this? How does this impact my life? Well, you know something? In the middle of all the negotiating with kings and casting big vision over a broken city, one of the things that's going on here within the story, right, the story within the story, is that it's just testimony to a God who does four things. It's testimony to a God who hears. Chapter 1, verse 4 says, what is it you want? What is it you want? He heard the cries of a broken city. It's also a God who guides. Verse 5 says, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Verse 12 says that he instructs, I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. And chapter 2, verse 20 says, the God of heaven will give us success. He also sustains. Right in the middle of this Narrative. There's this story of a God who hears, guides, instructs, and sustains. And the thing is, as we walk with Jesus for the transformation of this city, we need to access a God who hears, God's guides, instructs, and sustains. And I wonder if any of you need to hear one of those words today.